Welcome to the Peak City Podcast. We're your hosts, Shane Reese, Nick Bryant, Alexis Jensen, Leif Jensen, Amber Keister, and I'm Heather Taylor. And welcome everybody to our series on the history of Apex. Take it away, Holloman Brothers. When the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941, America was mired in the throes of the Great Depression. In a matter of minutes, however, the focus shifted to an even bigger problem. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt declared that this day would live in infamy, and no one doubted his prediction. Everyone knew that that awful day would mark the end of one painful era and the beginning of another. If there was a silver lining on this dark day, it was that the patriotism and heroism of the generation of young men and women who were living at that time would be tested, and they would pass that test with remarkable courage and success. And so they earned the name, The Greatest Generation. When my brother Warren and I were growing up in the 50s and 60s, just about everyone from our parents' generation remembered exactly where they were, whom they were with, and what they were doing when they heard the news about Pearl Harbor. It was a day when time stood still. When we were writing the second edition of our book about 15 years ago, the greatest generation was getting old and we knew they wouldn't be around much longer. So Warren decided to interview some of those who were still alive to preserve their important stories so that their future generations would never forget the service and sacrifice that they made. Where were you on December 7th, 1941, when you heard the news that the Japanese had bombed Pearl Harbor? That's the question Warren put to the greatest generation, and he got some quite amazing answers. This is what Doris Weatherspoon Vaughn told me. Her son Chris and I had grown up together, and I reached out to her, and here's what she said. I was on a date with my fiancé at Pullen Park in Raleigh. We had the radio on and were watching the kids on the merry-go-round. The announcement came over the radio saying we had been bombed at Pearl Harbor. It was a shock, and it was terrible. We just didn't believe the Japanese would attack us, and if they did... We didn't think they would kill so many soldiers and destroy so many ships. My fiancé, Klein Vaughn, was in the Navy already. He had joined because it was the Depression and there were no other jobs. At the time of the bombing, Klein was working at the recruiting station in Raleigh. Within a few weeks, he was in Norfolk, training as a medic. We married December 15, 1942. Within a few weeks, he was shipping off to the South Pacific. He said that after he went under the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco, he thought, he feared, he would never see it again. He spent most of the war working as a medic in a big mobile hospital in Australia. He took care of soldiers wounded in the South Pacific, and day after day he saw the suffering caused by the war. By the way, our uncle Clarence Toby was yeah. wounded in the South Pacific, and he was sent to Australia for to recover. For treatment, yes. Yeah. But Klein Vaughn also got to experience the hospitality of the Australian people. He said they were so good to the American soldiers, they would invite the soldiers over to their homes to spend the weekend. He said one family even would serve them breakfast in bed. Ever afterwards, he said that if he could live any place in the world beside North Carolina, it would be Australia. 
Then Mrs. Vaughn said, During the war, I stayed here on Penny Road looking after my father and our daughter, who was born September 14, 1943. My husband did not see her until she was 18 months old. Yeah. After he came back from the war, we moved to Camp Lejeune, and that's where we were when the war ended. So actually, just before the end of the war, he came back to Camp Lejeune. I remember that day because we were sitting out in the yard, and all of a sudden, we heard all this noise. Cars were driving by, blowing their horns. Everybody was excited. I remember I felt exhilarated. It was such a wonderful feeling to know that it was finally over. By that time, my husband already had several years of service, so he decided to make a career of it. Part of the time he was at Lejeune, part of the time at Norfolk, and he would try to get home to Apex on the weekends. He also worked some stints as a recruiter in Raleigh. He stayed with the Navy for 30 years, and we stayed married 61 years until his death in 2006. This is a wonderful story of two young people from Apex who were in love at the time that the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor and so who got married quickly before one of them headed off to war. Now, the next story is one in which the couple decided to wait. Well, actually, the parents decided (laughs) the couple would wait. This is the story of Edith Lynn Raines, who lived on Center Street near where the Seagroves Farm subdivision is today. Historically, going way back in Apex's history, this was known as WAPS Community. WAPS, W-H-O-P-S. So here's what Ms. Raines told me. I was at home when the news came on the radio. We were stunned. We couldn't believe it. My parents realized the seriousness of even more than I did. I was only 13 years old. Remember that, 13 Mm. years old. Mm -hmm. So I didn't understand war. My dad talked about it because he had a younger brother. My dad knew he would soon be drafted, which he was. I was my daddy's girl, so I listened with him. We stayed there listening for more news. At the time, I was going with Carlos. He was 18, and he wanted to get married before he went off to war. But my daddy said I was too young. I told Carlos I would wait for him, and I did. He was gone two and a half years with the Army in Okinawa and the Philippines. And then two weeks after he came back, we got married. And she smiled. He was sitting right there and said, and we still are. So that interview took place back in 2009. Since then, sadly, both Edith and Carlos have passed on. This week, I was thinking about them. So I went down to Mount Zion Baptist Church in Friendship, and I visited their grave. One of the things that's so nice about these two stories, told to us by Doris Weatherspoon Vaughn and Edith Lynn Raines, is that they have a happy ending. But not every Apex Pearl Harbor story has a happy ending. Wallace Wumble grew up in the Buckhorn Township, there between New Hill and Holly Springs. His family farm was where Harris Lake County Park is today. It's in that area where the Frisbee golf course is. And in the fall, you can go there and see the foundation of the family home, eat muscadine grapes from the Womble family grapevine, which the park has preserved. When I asked Wallace Womble, where were you when you heard the news about Pearl Harbor? Here's what he told me. It was a Sunday afternoon. I was attending Bethel Church. My uncle had just bought a car. My cousin Sam couldn't wait to show it to us. 
It had a radio, which was unusual for that day. After the service, my brother Miller and I went out with Sam to look at the car. When we turned on the radio, they were talking about Pearl Harbor. We had never heard of Pearl Harbor, but we learned about it pretty quick. Both Sam and Miller were killed in the war. Sam in France and Miller in Belgium. They died in October of 1944, just one day apart. Mm. And if you think about it, this was just, at, you know, in the wake of the D-Day invasion. Yes. Uh, and the, in the weeks following, the soldiers fought inland toward Germany, and they both died in that last part of winning the war. The Wumble tragedy is close to home for Toby and me. Our father grew up with Sam and Miller down in the country. The Holloman farm was right next to the two Wumble farms. It was, as Toby said, it was down there where Harris Lake is today in the, in the nuclear power plant. I remember one time asking my dad why his family didn't throw a big party for him when he came home from the war. And he said, how could our family celebrate when our two next door neighbors didn't make it home? I guess I was feeling nostalgic this week. So after I visited Edith and Carlos Rain's grave, took a couple of pictures of that. I drove over to Collins Grove Cemetery there at Holloman's Crossroads, and I visited Miller's grave as well. Miller was Wallace's brother who died. I'm pretty sure Miller was actually buried in Belgium, but the family placed a, a nice marker there in the Wumble section of the cemetery, and it's actually right next to the Holloman section of the cemetery, which is nice for us to, to remember them by. Our fourth story involves a person that, well, if you grew up in Apex or have lived here very long, you knew this person, Jean Sutton Hack. She and her husband Joe were two of the most energetic and colorful people in town. If you were feeling down, there was no better therapy than to go over to their house or meet them at downtown and spend a few minutes with Jean and Joe. Right. And when I say colorful, I'm not just talking about their personality. <laughs> I'm talking about the way they dressed. Other people in the old Apex were kind of dressed in plain clothes, but they like to show up in parties and big occasions with some color in their clothes and flowers in their mm -hmm. lapels. Funny story. When I was a senior in high school, our senior play was Lil Abner, which was rather appropriate for the Apex of that era. And I played two very eccentric characters. One was Evil Eye Flegel. He was a sort of a flim-flam man, a swindler, and his costume was supposed to be a bright green suit, like the color of money. And the other character I played was Senator Jack S. Fogbound. If you've seen the play, you know that the campaign motto for the senator was, there's no Jack S. like our Jack S. So he was a Southern senator, and he was modeled, I think, after the famous North Carolina governor and senator, Clyde Huey. Governor. He was famous not only because of his political success, but because he always wore a white suit, Southern gentleman thing. So I go to my mom and say, Mom, what am I going to do? I'm supposed to wear a bright green suit and a white suit. Where am I ever going to get such a thing? And she said, oh, no problem. Let's go talk to Joe Hack. We go over to his house, and he says, oh, no problem. He goes in his closet, and within a minute, I'm trying on a bright green suit and a white suit. And they were perfect. Wow. Now, I, that was a little bit of an aside, but I wanted to tell that story because it gives you a feel 
for Jean and Joe's colorful personality. They're a brilliant spirit. And I wanted you to, to know that about them so you could grasp the full emotion of the story I'm about to tell. So you know sort of what was underneath that outwardly bright and cheerful spirit. So when I, you know, 15 years ago, asked Jean what she remembered about December 7th, 1941, here's what she told me. I was 12 years old. I remember it vividly. That morning, we went to Sunday school and church, and after church, a dear friend, Catherine Tudor of Fuquay, came home with me to eat lunch and play. We had the radio on, a big wooden radio, a beautiful piece of furniture, and they broke in with the news of Pearl Harbor. My mother, she started crying. I asked her why, and she said that Herbert, my older brother, he was five years older, would be the perfect age to go to war. That was the first premonition I had of what was to come. My father was extremely upset, too. He had been wounded in the First World War wow. in France. Mm -hmm. Yeah. At that time, Herbert was finishing up at Campbell College. In those days, Campbell was a junior college, and my brother had been accepted to transfer and finish at Carolina. Herbert was 19 when he was drafted, and he was 20 when he was killed. He went to boot camp, came here for Christmas, then reported to Fort Meade in Maryland. From there, he was shipped overseas. He was a member of the, the Army's 2nd Infantry, which was called the, quote, Indian Head Division. Now, Herbert was not allowed to tell us where he was, but he was allowed to write us letters. And in one letter, he said, Daddy, you would like it here because they have good blackberry wine. He said that because Daddy made all kinds of homemade wine. On August 3rd, 1944, Lloyd Castleberry, the police chief of Apex, came up to the house and asked where my daddy was. My mother was sitting on the front porch making a dress for me. Now remember that, that will come back. Making a dress for me. She told him he was at the tobacco barn. So Mr. Castleberry drove down there and then he left. Then we saw Daddy coming toward the house. Mama could tell something was wrong by the way he was walking. His head was down, his shoulders were stooped, and he was crying. My mother, who never raised her voice, started screaming, Alan, what is it? Is it Herbert? Is he all right? Is he wounded? Daddy couldn't speak. He just handed her the telegram, and they embraced and cried. The telegram was from President Roosevelt saying Herbert was killed in action July 11th. 1944 in St. Lowe, France. Again, like the Wumble Brothers in the wake of the D-Day invasion. We had to send telegrams to all our relatives. Mom and Daddy were too torn up to go themselves, so they sent me. I walked uptown and sent the telegrams, and by the time I got back home, the yard was filled with cars and people coming to the house. People kept coming for days and days. The people of Apex were so wonderful. Many months later, my mama decided to finish making me that dress. She was busy sewing when she heard the announcement on the radio that President Roosevelt had died. That would have been April 12, 1945. My parents loved Franklin Roosevelt, so mama was upset. Every time I work on this dress, she cried, somebody dies. So that was the end of that dress. She never finished it. Never finished it. No. The Army never told us any details about his death. Years later, my mother advertised in the Stars and Stripes, that was an old magazine for veterans, requesting information. A man wrote us saying he recalled a soldier whom he believed to be my brother. He said that Herbert frequently volunteered to go out as a scout, 
and on one such mission he was killed by a landmine. The man said that when the soldier is wounded, he's taught to signal this by sticking his gun upright in the ground. When we found him, the man wrote, his gun was in the ground, but he had already died. Every year since 1945, our families remembered Herbert by placing a red, white, and blue flower arrangement in the Apex Methodist Church, usually on the 4th of July weekend. And just before my mother died in 1966, she asked me to never stop doing this. Let me insert, Warren, uh, something more recent. Gene died a couple of years ago, and yeah. I was had moved back to Apex by then, and so I attended her funeral, and boy, was it a grand celebration of her very colorful life. And I got to meet again. Uh, they were this little boys when I left Apex and went off to college, but I got to meet her sons again, Herbie and Sutton, and... Uh, would you know it? They still go on July 4th to the church and place red, white, and blue flowers on the church there in the sanctuary. And they do that in Uncle Herbert's honor. In that sanctuary, you'll see a lovely stained glass window, in fact, that is dedicated to his honor. Yeah. When I interviewed Jean in 2009, she told me that in the months leading up to the D-Day invasion, Herbert was not allowed to reveal his whereabouts to the family uh, or anybody. By this time, of course, information of this nature was available on the Internet. So I did some Google research about the uh, 2nd Infantry Division. Here's what I learned, and I was able to share that with Jean. The website for the 2nd Infantry Division said that in the months leading up to the D-Day, Herbert would have trained in Wales or Northern Ireland. And I'm guessing that's probably where he tasted that good blackberry wine. Yeah. With the rest of the 2nd Infantry, he would have crossed the English Channel on June 7th, yeah. the second day of the D-Day invasion. We had an uncle, actually, who, had, who also entered on the second day of the invasion. They might have been together and landed on Omaha Beach near Saint-Laurent-sur-Mer. Three days later, Herbert and the division liberated the city of Trevaras. They then began a long assault of Hill 192, which was a strategic German position on the road to Saint-Lô. Second Infantry took that hill on July 11, 1944, and that was the day Herbert died. From there, the Allies continued routing the Nazi army across northern France, Germany, and Czechoslovakia culminating in the German surrender in May 1945. So, Warren, we began by sharing a couple of Apex Pearl Harbor love stories that had happy endings, and now we've talked about two stories with sad and tragic, painful endings. The last story Warren is going to share is one that has a little bit of everything. Sacrifice, service, touches of humor, well, if you knew Roscoe Fryer, and we certainly did growing up, you mm -hmm. know that he had a great sense of humor, a great ability to, to discern the irony that is in certain circumstances and to appreciate the funny things that can happen, even in the midst of some very serious situations. And this story is going to bring us back full circle. Remember the first story from Doris Weatherspoon Vaughn, where her husband started the war by sailing out under the Golden Gate Bridge? and heading into the dangerous Pacific Theater. As he passed under that bridge, he worried that he would never see that bridge again. Yeah. He was afraid yeah. he would die somewhere way out in the Pacific Ocean. 
Well, yeah. this last story is about another Apex hero returning home from that war and what he saw when he entered the same San Francisco harbor after passing under the Golden Gate Bridge. But let's go back to the beginning, December 7th, 1941. So here's what Mr. Fryer told me. It was a Sunday afternoon. I was working at Mr. Tyndall's Pure Oil Service Station. It was still there when Toby and I were growing up, yeah. by the way. It's there where the Apex Baptist Church is today. Mr. Fryer said, we would grease Mr. Carter's trucks on Sunday. He had a fleet of trucks, so he could send them out first thing Monday morning. I was working on a truck, and J.Q. Seagroves, now he's the Seagroves, whose Seagroves Farm Subdivision was named for. Mr. Seagroves was up there at the time. We always had the radio on, so we heard it as soon as it happened. I remember they said the military would be working all night to enlist new soldiers. Now, I was too young to go out without my dad's permission. I was 16, and he wouldn't allow me to sign up, so I had to wait until I was 18. I wasn't finished with high school, but I went back later and finished up after the war. I joined the Navy. I went to Maryland to boot camp and got assigned to a patrol craft. It was 121 feet long. We escorted submarines from Connecticut to Florida, and we patrolled the coastline for German submarines. One time we found one off the coast of Connecticut, put out a depth charge, and oil came up. That meant we got it. A funny thing happened in the middle of the war. We were on leave in New York City, and we went to a bar. The label on the bottle of whiskey said, Percy Flowers. Now, everybody in North Carolina knew who Percy Flowers was. Now, even in our day, people knew who Percy Flowers yeah. was. He was the biggest bootlegger in the state of North Carolina. But I didn't know the people up north knew who he was. I had no idea his whiskey traveled all the way from Johnston County to New York City. Right after that, our PT boat went down through the Panama Canal and started patrolling the West Coast. Then I changed ships and got on an aircraft carrier, and we went to the South Pacific. I have lots of good memories, especially about coming home. When we came back across the Pacific, Admiral Nimitz was actually in our group. When we arrived in the San Francisco Harbor, there was a sign made out of big rocks saying, Welcome home. Well done. Now, the San Francisco Harbor there is where the Golden Gate Bridge is. Welcome home. Well done. The memory of that sign is very sentimental to me. And the final portion of Roscoe's story, like so many war stories, is the journey home. <laughs> and this is where Roscoe's funny personality comes out. Another sailor and I hitchhiked all the way home from California. People were nice to us all along the way. I guess they appreciated what we had done. People in Wyoming, I remember them because they had hardly ever seen a sailor before. They bought us drinks. They put us up for the night. We had a great time there. And then he said, a man who gave us a ride in Mississippi, and I thought, Mississippi, you... California, <laughs> Wyoming, Mississippi, it's kind of winding his way home. I think it? he's taking sort of a victory tour of the country must there. must <laughs> A man who gave us a ride in Mississippi bought us steaks. It was the best steak I ever had. But what I remember most is that the woman who cooked it was smoking a big, fat cigar. Well, she was celebrating too, Warren. <laughs> Yep, she sure was. We hope you enjoyed hearing these stories, Apex Pearl Harbor Remembrances. If you want to read more stories about Apex's greatest generation, we encourage you 
to take a look at our book, Pluck, Perseverance, and Pain, Apex, North Carolina, Beginnings to 1941. It's available at the Rusty Bucket, the Depot, soon, and online at www.apexhistory.org. And so, having made that shameless plug, <laughs> we conclude by saying, until next time, this is Toby and Warren Holloman saying, keep it plucky, my friend. That's right. Keep it plucky. Because